This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Michelle. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have writer and mental health advocate, Michelle Yang. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Sam. And if y'all are wondering, no, this is not my wife, Michelle. They just, <laughs> <laughs> they just happen to share the same name. And as far as we both know, neither of us are related to Democratic nominee, Andrew Yang. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you for having me on, Sam. So, Michelle, let's first start with your origin story, because I believe you have an MBA and you were on a different career trajectory than the one you're on now. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I was. Um, I'm ethnic Chinese, born in Korea, South Korea, in, in Chinatown, actually. And then, yeah, so going way back. But um, I immigrated to the States when I was nine. Um, we spoke Chinese at home and I went to a Chinese school when we were in Korea. Um, but all our friends spoke Korean on the playground. So I definitely grew up with the with both cultures. But our, our textbooks were from Taiwan. It's it was a very, you know, whenever somebody asks me about my my background, I, I feel like it's it's pretty complicated. Um, but then when we immigrated um, to the States, that was such a big change. Uh, none of us spoke English. My dad back in Korea was was um, in charge. You know, he was guidance counselor at the at the Chinese school that um, my brother and I attended. He was a community leader because our family was pretty well known. But once we were in the States, we were isolated. You know, he was kind of the lowest ranking cook in the kitchen, you know, at the Chinese restaurants where we worked because uh, we're, you know, because uh, once, even though they both were college educated, my mom and dad, you know, not speaking English, meant they had to do like restaurant work, you know, and my mom was a bus girl. So we, my brother and I, I was nine, my brother was six, went from having a full-time stay-at-home mom to we were home a lot by ourselves. And so because they were working so hard and there were so many challenges that they were facing, all of us were facing, the message over and over was like, we did this for you. We immigrated for you, for you to have a better future. So um, failure wasn't an option, right? And so it was a lot of pressure, not only from them, but I had put on myself as well because I wanted to do right by them. And so, you know, traditional Asian immigrant parents, they gave me two options for a career, lawyer or doctor. But I figured out pretty early on I didn't want to do either. So um, I actually um, majored in international relations um, and interned at the U.S. Embassy in Korea and had some amazing experiences. But eventually, after working in nonprofit, I ended up getting my MBA with an intention of going back to nonprofit and and um, becoming a nonprofit leader, which I did. After I um, got my MBA, I worked for the Girl Scouts um, as a fund development manager for several years before deciding to do a career switch. And soon I was recruited by one of the biggest corporations in the world. And you know, it's all about my mental health. Like, 
I, I fought really hard for this promotion. And my first day that I, of my new job in the new department, they announced that they sold, they're selling the department to a, another corporation, an even bigger corporation that like didn't have the Seattle roots and didn't have, you know, the same, same sort of ideals, you know? And so, uh, I had a really hard time because I think, you know, whenever there's like a corporate merger sort of a deal, there's a lot of struggles. And I realized that it was not a healthy place for me to be in. I was trying to, I I did, I stayed for nine months, but I felt like I couldn't stay a moment longer. (laughs) And, um, And bigger than that, I was coming into my own more and more as a mental health advocate. I had been a facilitator for a NAMI support group for over three years at that point. And NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And uh, realized that I was feeling the most confident in that group, that I it was the, the only place that I felt like I could be myself 100% and not fear the stigma. Because at work, I really didn't tell anybody. And um, and most friends, even people in my social groups, didn't know that I live with a men- with a mental health diagnosis. I live with bipolar disorder, and so having that skeleton in my closet was really a driving divide. You know, it was I'm a very open person, <laughs> and so uh, hiding that like deep dark secret made me an insecure person. You know, made me so that I couldn't speak out in meetings, you know, it made me fear that if people found this out about me, no matter how good I was at my job, which I was, you know, no matter how good of a friend I was, like once they found out, they wouldn't want anything to do with me, you know, that I would lose so much respect in their eyes. And so, um, but being a mental health advocate, being with my fellow support group attendees, like that, it didn't feel like that. And it built up my confidence to be like, to speak out, you know, there's so many great quotes, like Lindy West has said, you can't advocate for yourself if you won't first admit what you are. And Toni Morrison, who said, you know, once you have the power, you got to empower others. And I really was starting to feel that and feel the need to do that. And so I decided to to try it. I decided to yeah, quit my job, and become a full-time writer and mental health advocate. Do you think also growing up being bullied for undiagnosed bipolar disorder and also being an immigrant kind of formed your politics as far as advocacy of the voiceless and people who are disenfranchised? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I got the chance, you know, Chinese, dirties, you know, it's funny. Um, I have a funny story. Like when I was in seventh grade, there was a blonde girl who asked me like, oh, do all Chinese people have eyes that stick up and Japanese people have eyes that stick down? Is that how it works? <laughs> and I was like, I just stared at her speechless until I was like, are all blondes dumb? <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, of course, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-white people by by far, you know. You but, were flipping the script, right? Because she had an yeah. automatic set of assumptions. So you're saying, right. like, why is that the default? And if, exactly. I, if I'm the default, then I could say that about you. Right. And of course, that's not true. Blondes are not all dumb. So therefore, yeah, Chinese people do not have eyes that stick up. So career change is kind of like, especially when you go into writing, mm-hmm. 
it's hard to just start in your 30s. Were you always kind of writing on the side? Were you always a lover of writing? No. What? Well, I, (laughs) no, I wasn't. I mean, I always loved writing, like in high school and in college. Like, you know, in high school, I was um, in the creative writing group I like worked on the magazine and and I you know I won some essay contests and things like that and actually I even see myself as like the success I've had winning scholarships because I've always had success winning scholarships those are essentially essay contests yeah they are there are a lot of people who have better grades than me <laughs> you know but but um but I could tell a story and so I kind of use that as as encouragement for myself to like believe in myself and to give it a try. But it's, but still, it was a terrifying move. I mean, just announcing to the world that I have bipolar disorder is a terrifying move that I still get terrified by. And, you know, some, you know, sometimes I wake up anxious about because there's no putting that cat back in the bag. Right. Um, but I also don't want to like once I think myself through it, I'm like, no, I don't want to. I know that it's important. You know, I know I have that conviction. So yeah, I mean, I didn't know. I didn't have a path. I didn't know anything about the publishing world or the literary world or the freelance writing world. I just learned through the gift of the internet. (laughs) Once I made myself, you know, once I decided that this was what I was going to try to pursue... And um, I quickly learned that it's like, no, you need to build up a platform. You know, you need to build up like so people who like in order to attract a publisher, people are going to need to know who you are. And for one of the you know best ways to do that is to write articles so that people know that you're a writer before you have a book to promote. And the reason why I want to write a book I should back up is that, you know, when I was first diagnosed when I was 20 after that first hospitalization, which was really traumatic. I really, really wanted to find someone that that I could hold up as an example that things were going to be okay. You know, uh, I didn't know anybody else who had a mental health condition, let alone bipolar disorder. I had just experienced psychosis several times, what I what I then for the first time knew as psychosis, you know, and and I didn't know if I was going to ever be okay. I didn't know if I was going to be a burden for the rest of my life. Like I had this fancy scholarship and everything that like all, I had all these accomplishments. But then at age 20, I didn't know if it means like, does that mean everything has come crashing down? Like, am I going to lose my scholarship? I'll, will I never be able to hold down a job, let alone like, you know, get married, have have kids, like, all the things that I've always wanted. Like, does that mean all my dreams are have like completely disappeared at this moment with this diagnosis. So my parents owned a restaurant in Phoenix and I work there since I was 12 pretty much every day. And um, my one respite was like, and I was, I'm so thankful for this, that there's a library um, in the same shopping center. And that was absolutely my sanctuary, you know, and I went there all the time. All the librarians knew me by name and, And I, you know, I read a lot. I read while I was behind the counter at the restaurant, you know, and and so it was natural that it was always my my first resource. So when I tried to go find a book by somebody who lives with bipolar disorder that I could be like, look, this person made it like this person is okay. They had it and then they made it. But it was it was um, year 2000, 2001, you know, and so 
there I couldn't really find any books. There was one book that I found, but it was like a compilation and she was the the author was impressive. She was a Columbia student. So I found I found a, a lot of similarities between us, but she um, she was not a person of color and she was also still figuring it out. So I just I kind of did not find that solution. And now a couple of decades later, I still don't see that book on the shelf. I still don't see, you know, a, a book by an Asian uh, or Asian or any like person of color, really. There are some good ones now that are by people who, you know, by by white by white females mostly, which are really good. You know, I'm glad that they're there, wonderful resources, but I still would love to see somebody who has um, more of an experience similar to mine because a lot of those, the books that I read, they're like, oh, they had parents who were trying to get them help, trying to take them to a psychiatrist I did not have that experience. I was like, you know, fighting my parents, like, please get me help. And they didn't get it. You know, they were like, oh, we can't have have this on the permanent record. You won't get into college. Like, it's such a diversion experience that I know that many have an experience more similar to mine who who could if they can draw strength from it. Like, I would I would love to share my story. That's my whole thing. Whole mission is that I want to rewrite the narrative of mental illness, you know, in in our country and really in the world too. Because all the all, the only story that we see is the tragedy, the people who are dying by suicide, trying to kill themselves, who are just in crisis. But that is not the full story of people who live with mental health conditions. Only, you know, like, I mean, it's a big number, 30% attempt suicide if you live with bipolar disorder. That means 70% do not. You know, (laughs) there are people like me, there's so many people like me who live perfectly productive, happy, healthy lives, but you wouldn't know that because of like all the movies and TV shows are only talking about the sad stories. And um, I think we're just, very much on a um, we're in the infancy of representa- representation when it comes to mental health. And I, I want people to recognize that you didn't find a voice like yours. So you wrote it yourself and then it kind of went viral, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I wrote that I, I wrote my first essay coming. It was like my coming out story with my bipolar disorder and my first round of pitches. I had no idea what I was doing. So for people who don't know what pitches are in the writing world. What is that? So most publications will have a way for you to submit stories um, if you're interested in writing for them. Each one has a set of uh, rules like, oh, you need to either just submit the idea and the outline of what you want to write about, or you submit the whole story. So in my case, I have a draft so I submitted the whole story and I submitted it to several publications at once. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know, got nothing to lose. And then, and then it's like only after I already submitted it, I like read a book called Byline Bible that was like, this is how you actually submit stories. And I was like, oh, I did it wrong. It was really wrong. But still, I got a I got a response from um, Huffington Post from HuffPost three weeks later. And they're like, we like like to run your story for May 1st. And I only started writing in earnest in early February. And so, um, so yeah, that's how, that's how my first publication or first article came about. And then the Huffington Post article went viral. The subject 
of it was my mental illness did not prevent me from succeeding, but the stigma almost did. And it had a photo of my graduation ceremony and my cap and gown from my MBA program. And, um, and it just went through, it was very much what that was, was a coming out story where it, you know, went through the struggles I had, um, as a teenager with, um, my classmates calling me psycho behind my back, you know, and the immense pressure that I had put on myself and like the isolation I had felt growing up in Arizona, and you didn't have these kind of parents like we read about in these New Yorker articles about these Upper East Siders who finally like got treatment for their, you know, whatever issue that they have because they had very supportive and well off parents. This was a different kind of story. Yeah, no, my parents, you know, like they were trying to help in their own way. Right. They just didn't know what was they wanted what's best for me. They just didn't know how to execute that, you know. And and so when I begged for help, they they were so terrified of the system. They're immigrants, you know, so they don't trust, they don't trust, they don't trust the American system the same way. And they were afraid that if they took me to a therapist, that it would end up on my permanent record and I wouldn't get to go to college and then word would get out and then I wouldn't be able to get married and my life would be ruined. And so, you know, when it got really bad in high school, my dad drove me to California to a family friend's practice who was just a family doctor. He wasn't a therapist or a psychiatry expert. And I told him everything that was happening. He, I don't, I don't know why. I think maybe he just wanted to see, to not make it a, a big deal or I, you know, I don't, I, I don't really understand what was going through his head. He was downplaying it. Yeah. So he told my dad ultimately after talking to me for a long time that, oh, I was fine. I just have an active imagination and that I need to, to get some sleep, even though I talked about how, you know, at the time, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, the movie, I thought that was my life. Like, that was my plot that somehow people knew about my life and like made into a movie like that. You know, I talked about how depressed I was and how I wasn't able to sleep. But, you know, his diagnosis was just like, oh, yeah, no, she's fine. She has an overactive imagination. Just have her get some sleep, which is like the whole bane of my existence right like i'm like if i could just get some sleep you know <laughs> like, you know as if it was that easy like i just have to tell myself and i could get my sleep it was crushing right it was crushing because i finally thought i was getting help and if he wasn't a family friend he could have gotten in a lot of trouble for that kind of advice yeah i mean it, it wasn't like i don't think we paid him i have no idea it was like we had to wait until after the clinic was closed because that's how off the record my dad wanted it to be so yeah i mean i yeah i don't know you know, um, but it was really invalidating. Like I had been suffering for years and I had to further internalize it. So it was very harmful. And then in college, I so I won this really prestigious scholarship for, for college that included study abroad. And it was like suddenly, you know, because they, they give it to 20 students across the state every year. And yeah, and study abroad was a part of it. And as somebody who, you know, struggled with mental health, health conditions, like when I was in, when I, so I went to study abroad in China. So coming from Arizona, it's very starkly different, you know, very cold. It was snowing and 9-11 just happened. And so it was a, a pretty traumatic time and I felt really lonely and I felt a lot of pressure and I had a psychotic episode. Then I had a, well, I had, yeah, I went from a depressive episode to my dad had demanded me 
go to a different province for him to pick up these DVDs. It sounds so <laughs> it sounds so weird, but these DVDs were part of his uh, acupuncture practice that he had um, developed, and he wanted to to have have these educational acu- acupuncture DVDs. And so I was trying to tell him that I am like in no mental position to be able to do this because I was taking my finals and trying to finish up my program. But he and I was already deeply depressed. I was like not leaving my dorm room at all and not eating. And he but he was like, you have to do this. You have to do this. You're the only one you you can do this. And I remember my mind kind of flipping from depression to mania. Like I remember like it was like because I like I was literally rocking myself. And um, so it was like 2 a.m. And I ran out of the dorm with all my cash to catch a train to this other province. And it was quite a journey. And it's I feel really grateful that I made it back because it's I think that it's it's a miracle. It's like nothing short of a miracle because I actually I had like two thousand dollars cash on me because it was all my emergency funds that I hadn't touched during the whole semester. And it was the end of the semester. And like, I would, I would have gone back home and given it back to my parents, you know, but like I dropped it at the train station. And then I was like, in my mind, I was like, don't pick it up. You're not supposed to pick it up. And so I left my bag with all my money in the train station in the other province. And I had a train ticket that I already purchased and I, took the train back to Beijing. And then in Beijing, I realized I had no way to get to back to my university. There were just so many parts. Like when I was in that other province, I got into an unmarked cab, you know, at an odd hour. And I remember getting out of the cab and the the cab driver actually warning me, don't get into an unmarked cab next time, (laughs) you know? And so, and it was, there was just all these little instances where I feel like if I had gotten lost and I did not have my faculties with me at that time, right? Like what could have happened to me? Like you hear all these horror stories and you see, so I have so much empathy for people who are living in the streets, right? Who are suffering because 40%, I think, and I feel like that must be being conservative of how many homeless people live with mental health conditions, mental illness, you know, I feel like I could have easily become homeless in China. You know, if I had been attacked while I was in China, you know, I was a 20 something, 20, you know, 20 year old psychotic in China alone in a random province. If something would have happened to me and driven me further into psychosis, I don't know how anybody could have found me you know, in that, in like one point, you know, in the billion people, you know, and, um, and so like, I could easily see how horrific my life could have gone, but somehow, you know, I found my way to Beijing and with no money, like, I didn't think I had any money. And then I put my hands in my coat pockets and I remember just pulling out a crisp bill, you know, and I was like, oh, I had forgotten I had this like one wasn't a lot of money. It was like a, you know, like $10 equivalent to be like a $10 bill or something. And I used that to catch a cab back to my dorm room in Beijing. And like, if I didn't happen to have that money in my coat pocket, like, I, I also don't know what where I would have ended up in that huge, huge station in Beijing. And so yeah, once I was back, 
I think, you know, when I was in Arizona, whether I was at my college or high school, because people knew me so well, because people knew me to be the high performing individual who could like accomplish a lot of things. And, and just my reputation was what prevented me from getting the help that I needed because they're like, oh, this is not really you or whatever. People just refuse to see my struggles. They're like, you know, or they saw it as like cultural difference, you know, and, and that, that I would be okay. But when I was in China, I was with a bunch of students from all across the country in the U.S. Um, who didn't know me, right? And uh, the program directors didn't know me past the few months of, a, of the program that it, it was lasting. And so when they saw me in this state, they they knew something was wrong, you know, and so and also it was pretty severe. And so they um, I don't know if it was my roommate because I was out of my mind at that point or, you know, somebody in the program called the program director and the program director immediately called my father and told him that your daughter is sick. You need to come get her. <clears throat> and my dad yeah, flew out in the next available flight. And I remember opening my dorm room and him just like bawling into my, like he was blubbering, bawling into my arms, you know? And so in no way am I trying to paint my parents as this heartless, these heartless monsters, you know, <laughs> that like caused all my pain because I've never doubted that they love me, you know? And, and they just had a misguided point of view of how to help. You know, this is a complicated thing. There's a lot of denial in themselves and um, a lot of pressure and isolation that they're putting on themselves, family history that they may not be ready to face, you know? And so there's just so much, so much that it can't just be boiled down to a simple stereotype that too often gets perpetuated, I think, in in the U.S. pop culture where it's like, oh, blame the Asian parents, you know, or, you know, like there's usually not a, a single thing. It's, it's just not a, it's not just such a simple issue. But after that instance, then you came back to the U.S. and that's when you really started getting. Right. My dad brought me back home. And actually, here's a commentary on U.S. access to mental health care. I was on a wait list to see a psychiatrist for over a month. <laughs> so when I was in China, they took me to like an emergency clinic where um, where a European doctor at a Western hospital prescribed me some antipsychotic because I was actively actively in psychosis. It was hard for them to diagnose what you are. You know, and so so he gave me um, a medicine that was not right for me at the time. It actually made me gain like 60 pounds. But like I had to keep taking it because I had no other doctor. <laughs> so, so we get back to States. We're on a wait list for like over a month. Finally, we went to see the, psych the psychiatrist and he was great. I think there's this also misperception currently where people think that by bipolar disorder is overdiagnosed, that it's like this diagnosis du jour, you know, that like people, doctors are just handing it out the diagnosis here and there so that you can sell pharmaceuticals. And I just feel like that is not my experience. And that is not the experience that I have heard when I, in my years as uh, a facilitator in the bipolar support group at NAMI. That is not the case. I think doctors are very careful about 
giving that diagnosis because it's a serious one. You know, you wouldn't just say like, oh, you have cancer really nilly, you know, and so um, you have to like make sure. And unfortunately, with mental health conditions, there's not like a blood test that you can take and say like, oh, this is what it is, you know. Um, And so you just have to observe. And um, what happened with that first psychiatrist was he didn't want to you know, make any conjectures as to like bipolar disorder. So he thought it was major depressive disorder. So he just prescribed antidepressants. And if you are, if you have bipolar disorder and you take a SSRI, which is an antidepressant, it can push you into mania. So that's what happened to me. So I became very manic after taking antidepressant. And then I remember the solemnness with which that that psychiatrist had to deliver the news to me and my parents. I was like, no, yeah, she has bipolar disorder. And then um, and then they put me on a mood stabilizer. So coming back wasn't like the end of the story. That was actually just the beginning of a new journey. Yeah. And actually, I didn't find the right combination of medications to to really stabilize me until I was hospitalized in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S., So was that after a month of waiting, then you got hospitalized? Is that a different story? No, it was after a month of waiting. I saw the psychiatrist and I was under his care. um, But I was still, I mean, it's not right away that you can sometimes break out of your episode. And so I was having like suicidal ideation. What is ideation? Just having, having thoughts of suicide. And, um, and so I never attempted attempted suicide, but what happened was I remember I locked my bedroom door, I put my put my um mattress against the door, and then I like painted with red nail polish down my arm, down my wrists as if I was cutting them, you know? And um and so, you know, it just it kind of gives you what psychosis is like. It's just um, you know, I've, I've heard other people explain it this way. And I think it's very apt that it's like, you know, how everybody has dreams, right? Everybody dreams. And when you dream and you have a nightmare, you have that like pounding heart sort of, um, feeling and you feel like it's a world is a really scary place. And wherever there is like holes to the logic, your brain kind of fills it in. You know, um, and like it creates the backstories, right? Like that always ex- that that's the experience I have when I'm dreaming. So that that's how it how it is in psychosis as well. Like it's it's as if you're dreaming, so you're seeing all these things that aren't real, but in your mind they're real. It was actually I was only hospitalized for a couple of days, and my doctor actually called it like a kind of respite for my family who had been taking care of me for this, you know, because they they knew like it was over a month, right? While we were trying to to wait to see this psychiatrist, you know, to have to for them to have a break as well. Because yeah, that's a that's a point too that to to make for people who are supporting people with mental illness that like you can't help others if they're if you're not in a position to do so, if you're not practicing self-care yourself. But going to the hospital was the was a was a great thing for me because it got me on the right meds and so afterwards yeah I took a I ended up taking a semester off of college after that and I remember thinking like is this the end will I never go back and it was a really scary thing to do but 
it was fine. <laughs> you know, I did take a semester off. I did an internship, you know, and uh, and then I went back and it was like I was back to being the high achieving college student that I was. And I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about my what happened to me. You know, of course, some people knew because they witnessed some of my closer friends, you know, but I graduated summa cum laude. I graduated senior of the year. <laughs> you know, like I, I graduated with all these honors. I, gra- I was a homecoming. I was on the homecoming court, at, you know, and so it was like there was all these things that like, oh, you know, life goes on. And that's like the big message I want to give to young people is that it's like definitely not the end of end of the world. You know, it it can feel like um, a death sentence when you first get a serious diagnosis because there's not enough people sharing their stories. The narrative is so one note right now, right, that it's hard to keep hope when you don't see people who are living well, ha- happy lives, um, fulfilled lives while living with a mental, like managing a mental illness successfully. But it's absolutely possible. There's so many of us doing it. You just don't know because the stigma is so strong. Because if you want to, if you come out, you're all you're you're afraid that you'll suddenly be seen differently. So as difficult as going to China and having this episode was, in a weird way, if that hadn't happened to you, maybe your diagnosis would have been even further delayed. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that was a realization I came to during my writing. Actually, that it was actually that it was, um, you know, in retrospect, can be seen as a gift that I got diagnosed when I was 20, because I hear people read about people who don't don't get diagnosed until much later in life. And um, it can be much more degenerative. I don't know if it's a blessing. It's more like it is what it is in the current state of it is what it is in society, because (laughs) a lot of times, especially from what I've read and heard about people who have mental health conditions it's like it has to get to the point of like getting so bad before it gets diagnosed rather than early detection for a lot of people you know it's not like uh diabetes or like cancer where we're trying to do early detection mental health is something we're always like delaying the detection Mm -hmm. but yeah but we should flip that script and it should be early detection you know it should yeah without the stigma like Oh my God. <laughs> you know, right? Like, it's just like if we can help get help faster, just the amount of lives and grief and heartache that we can prevent, like, I just, that would be just my greatest wish. Yeah. <laughs> How much of our resistance to mental health care and getting mental health checkups comes from stigma? And how much of it is just coming from plain ignorance and lack of education? Like your parents, for instance. Or other Americans whose parents moved to the U.S. and were unable or unwilling to accept their child's mental health needs. Because, you know, stigma means like you have a negative stereotype of something. But I wonder if they don't even know what that is. They're like, mental health, what is that? I know physical pain, a pain that isn't like a broken bone or whatever. I could see how that can also seem very abstract for people. That's a really great point. And those are so intertwined, I think, stigma and lack of, you know, education and ignorance, because they, they absolutely go hand in hand. Um, Do you think ignorance leads to fear? Absolutely. It's all you you had hit it on the nose. Like, I, I yeah, it's absolutely fear based. They they're 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 afraid that it's like the, you know, and 
I'm using the word crazy here purposely, but it's like they, if they if people think crazy people do this, it's not me. And so they, they're just trying to remove themselves from it as much as possible or they deny. So, you know, when you say about ignorance, deny that it's a real thing. You know, my earliest memory of learning about a mental health condition was listening to my parents talk about somebody who is depressed, like one of their friends. And I think I was in Korea. It was very, I was very young, but they were, they were saying like, oh, you know, and it's like, oh, so-and-so says that she's depressed. And it's like, it's such, you know, BS, you know, uh, cause I, I, you know, she's, I think she's just being lazy is what they said. You know, she's just in bed all the time. But then I saw her playing mahjong, <laughs> playing mahjong and like, and her eyes are so alert and so bright, you know, and like, I just remember, recall the vehemence that they, they, you know, it's like agents can gossip, right? Anybody can, you know, like, and so they're gossiping with the best of them. And I, I just remember hearing like such a, you know, even as a child, I questioned it. I questioned my parents' point of view of like, how do you know? Like, why are those two, like, why can't you be depressed and be alert during a mahjong game? (laughs) Like, like, and so, um, it is ignorance. It's fear. There's not understanding of it. There's so that there's so much of like the exorcism thing happening, right? Like you're being possessed by the devil, you know, when, when you're in psychosis, because for one, I don't really uh, understand, but it is part of the, it's a, it's a symptom. It's called, you know, grandiosity. And I suffered from it too. when I was having psychotic, um, a psychotic episode where like somehow it's like a very spiritual experience. And like, you know, I, I think that I'm connecting with my grandparents who have passed away or, you know, like there's, there's a lot of this like myth and religion sort of things that are that kind of get connected with psychosis so it's kind of no wonder that it gets drawn into not only in the asian culture but you know in all like a lot of latino cultures too like you know they they do the exorcism and yeah in pretty much every culture i think they they sometimes um associate mental illness with something that needs to be like have the devil or the evil driven out of you and I also wanted to go back to your earlier point about parents denying this exists. It is absolutely not unique to Asian American culture or immigrant culture because I hear all the time from people who are responding to my writing or from um, from group that it's like, yeah, no, their parents were like that too. And they, you know, they come from Caucasian background, you know, and um, it's just, it's just the fear. I, I feel like it's hard to separate stigma from lack of education and ignorance because if you were educated then you wouldn't hold stigma anymore you know and so if you were educated about mental illness then yeah I I don't think that like why would you have um, discrimination and stigma like you would have much further understanding that's always married together right people who are the most fearful are the ones who are like the most anti-education right they're like you don't need college they're gonna make you more progressive or learn these ideas you don't need to learn Yeah, or just pray it away, you know, pray it away. It's like seen as a lack of strength that you need help, you know, and it's absolutely not the case. You know, you and I, like we are on the same page on this, you know, but like, but, you know, to be able to heal, you have to ask for help and process these things in a, in a like in-depth way. And that often you can't do by yourself you need an outside perspective um somebody to is is an, a professional empathizer you know to to support you um so that you don't pass it on to your kids right like you don't pass on your own trauma to your kids 
it's a it's a it can be a cycle and um my parents unfortunately like couldn't heal and so my brother and I have felt that you know and I've um worked on a lot to try to understand my parents from a more empathetic and compassionate point of view and I do still wish that they would have done better you know like that's I can't help that I actually joke with my own Michelle my own wife that the more we can self-care and take care of our own stuff, the less of it we're going to pass down to him, not as a contagion, but more of like that they don't internalize our own traumas that we haven't dealt with. Yes. Getting good grades, going to school. Those are like basics that probably without us doing a lot, he'll be able to take care of. But what we can try to save him from is a lot of therapy down the line if we could just handle <laughs> our own stuff now. <laughs> That's a lot of money saved. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I wanted to move on to empathy, creating more empathy for us who can be better allies and who are listening to you speaking about this. So what does it feel like when you have something like bipolar disorder? Having bipolar disorder, I think most people think of somebody who has bipolar disorder and they immediately think of somebody who is in crisis, somebody who is suicidal. They don't really think of somebody like me, you know, who has an MBA, who had a you know corporate career, who is happily married in a long, stable relationship. Functional. Yeah. And who is a good mother. Like, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm like, no, I'm a good mother. Do we just kind of think permanently dysfunctional? I think so. Like unstable, volatile, dangerous. I feel like those are all the stereotypes that go with severe mental illness that people people think about. Like they don't think about people like me, which is a huge part of the population of people who live with this condition. And so that's actually what I want people to know the most. You know, my doctor six years ago put a put a label in my charts that said in remission, even though I, I had been this. That's when I met this new doctor. She, she was like, OK, you, you're in remission, you know, and I, I was like, oh, like I've never. I've never encountered that in my almost 20 years living with bipolar disorder, but it was I, I realized after like, I like th- I had to think about it for a while and I realized, yeah, it's very apt to describing my condition because, you know, Pretty much since I've been on my mood stabilizer, I've been, I've been pretty stable. I've been, you know, productive, you know, and I've been, I, I feel like I'm a just as normal as the next person, you know, quote unquote normal, right? Like if I didn't tell people, people would not know that I live with, me- with a mental health condition. And of course, in remission is, is a term that is normally associated. Like for me, I think about it for cancer, right? So imagine if somebody had cancer and they, you know, went through treatment and then they became they became well, they, their cancer is in remission. But if people only thought of that person always as when they were like they looked at that person the same with the same filter as a person who has terminal cancer, that would be really a inaccurate way to assess that person correct you know <laughs> like and so i think that it's really strange that we don't have that distinction for mental illness and i know that part of the um apprehension around doing that is because they don't want people to stop their treatment 
because they're like, oh, I'm in remission. I don't need to take my medication. That is not how it works, right? <laughs> like it's that's why it's like more people draw a similarity, draw an analogy to it as um, like diabetes, because like you always have to take your insulin or medication, you know. And so, but also, but there's all there's no there's no perfect analogy, right? Because there's no diabetes in remission, right? Like so. I just want people to know that people living with bipolar disorder or, you know, other severe mental health conditions, like, because for me, I had to face my own prejudices too, of even though I've lived with bipolar disorder for a really long time, I met people with um, schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia for the first time when I became involved with NAMI. I had to face my own fear and stigma, like, because I was like, oh, you know, and all I, all I had to draw from, too, even though I should have studied more, <laughs> was the, the images from the media, you know, and I, rem- I remember going to a training session, a, a facilitator training session, and the person sitting next to me was this, like, very nice-looking, suburban sort of looking woman, you know, and she has schizophrenia, you know, and I was like, wow. Like I really had to like check myself. And now a lot of I have I've made friends with a lot of people who live with schizoaffective disorder. And there's also that um, book by Esme Wong, The Collect Schizophrenias, who talks about her uh, schizoaffective disorder. And she has uh, Ivy League degrees. And, you know, she's like a brilliant person who is like really high achieving. And her book is on the bestseller list, the New York Times, you know, and like. But for people listening to this also, you don't have to have necessarily an Ivy League degree to be successful or functional. No, of course not. Yeah, of course not. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. And that is not what I mean. But I'm just saying like, there's such a gamut, right? There's such a wide range of people. Um it's, it's absolutely on a spectrum, but we only think of the most severely bad cases, you know, and I just think that it's time to change that public's perception. Just like the rest of us, even though you have a mental health condition, you know, a lot of our struggles and successes can be independent of that. Just like the rest of us be based on your circumstances and your own talents and so yes, forth. Yeah, it doesn't define you. Your mental health condition doesn't define you. And that is just a message that we need to like drive in so, so hard because like whoever you were before you learned you were bipolar or severely depressed or have, you know, general anxiety disorder, whatever it may be, you're still that person, you know, and what dreams that you had before, you can still work for them. You know, you can still go after them. Like you may have to have make some changes to the timeline of when you want to achieve them or whatever, you know, it's like, cause it's a disability, right? It's classified under the American Disabilities Act as a disability, you know, employers are supposed to make accommodations, you know, so that you can accomplish the things that you want to do, but you are still able to do everything you want to do. And I, I really want to help um, encourage the people in my community who live with mental illness, because I think there's a lot of us who given up on ourselves so then they don't do as much as they they could accomplish because they don't think they're afraid of the failure. They don't think it can because the society's message is like, you can't. But I'm saying you can. <laughs> it's kind of like a scarlet letter, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, with self-care, with treatment, you know, like you can absolutely keep doing the things that you want to do. One of the things that strikes me listening to you is how aware you were of what was happening to you even during the psychotic episode. Now, not all of it is there, but you have a lot of it in your memory. And I think that's another thing we get wrong is a lot of people suffering. They're suffering because they're also aware of what's happening. And it's maybe like they can't control all of it. 
So on top of the struggles of the condition itself, I wonder how much the suffering comes from the isolation and the alienation you feel once you have a condition like that. Going back to your article, one of the key points was more than the condition itself, it was the stigma that was more harmful or painful. And it seems like that's another thing we don't think about is we're adding to people's suffering by isolating and alienating them. Not only that, it's the stigma that prevents the access to help. That's the that's the driving point, I think, for for my story was like all those years that I wasn't able to get help was because of the stigma, both from my parents, from my community, just like because they can't recognize that a person who is high performing, who has straight A's, who is a star in extracurricular activity can also at the same time have a mental health condition. <laughs> you know, that's like a really hard for thing for people to um, reconcile. Did you find any people treated you differently after they found out or everybody around you was pretty supportive? You know, I was actually surprised. That's another thing, too. It's like it, you, I think, internalize it so much more that it's going to be the end of the world. Like there's especially as a young person, you know, like you can be very dramatic of like, oh, my God, if this got out, it's going to be the end. You know, and actually, that's how my parents are, too. You know, they, they're very they live in a very, um, you know, dramatic sort of world. And and uh, every time I've come out to people, it hasn't been as big of a deal, you know? And like even this latest when I like basically told the world via HuffPost article, I kept waiting to get trolled. Nobody trolled me. I'm so lucky. <laughs> I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. Like I can't believe. But yeah, I all I got was an outpouring of support from my previous bosses, from my coworkers, um, from even people from high school who reached out and were like, I struggled with the same things you did. And like one, you know, and we just didn't know, like we would, were so scared of the stigma that we weren't confiding in each other and we were isolating ourselves. And to me, that is the greatest tragedy. You know, I had like my best friend from middle school through high school. Turns out she had a panic condition that she was like, she would wake up with panic attacks. And here I was suffering, you know, with, undiagnosed bipolar disorder and we never talked about it with each other and yet every day after school during school like you know after school we were on the phone we were picking out our outfits you know we were talking about the most mundane things but we were not talking about the fact that we were like living in fear you know so when stigma becomes so internalized it's not so much the world is isolating you they might be doing that a little bit but a lot of it can be self imposed isolation because of this internalized stigma. Absolutely. It's both. If we as a society had less stigma, both internalized and external, how much better it would be, like how much easier it would be, how much easier for us to deal with and seek treatment and be well, you know, like I don't have to tell you, Sam, and or the I think everybody knows the, you know, the epidemic of the suicide rates going up among our young people and, you know, just in general, like, I'm glad that there's more dialogue like this happening. There's podcasts like yours that are talking about this as an important issue, but there's still much work to be done. We need to change that dialogue. I know I use the LGBT community um, as an analogy because for me, like, it really is fitting, you know, because it's like I had to hide my diagnosis. I feel like much like people must have hit their their sexuality right and as far as like 
media representation in film and TV, like I feel like when when it when it was in its infancy, the only movies that we saw about gay people were like they're dying of AIDS or they're criminals or you know, and I get and and it, the same could be really for any marginalized community like Asian Americans too, like when they're first. You know, you see them in in film. There's like Breakfast at Tiffany's or that John Hughes movie. You know, like the they're just really stereotypical, flat, not realistic representations, um, and only in a lot of just tragedies, right? Like Madame Butterfly or Miss Saigon, where you know, like and with a LGBT community, like yeah, like I said, people like dying of AIDS, just the the worst ending possible, <laughs> you know, and so that because like it's it's too it's the most dramatic, it draws the most empathy, but it's also not accurate to the whole representation. And like if you think about how far we've come, both in Asian American representation and in um, LGBT representation, there's so many strong characters. I think with like one of the pivotal moments was when Ellen came out on her sitcom, right? And it's like it's this person who America already like loved and trusted as like, you know, a pretty normal person. And then she came out as gay, you know, and that was like really eye opening for people. Yeah, you can be normal. You can be normal and gay. Those are not <laughs> yeah. exclusive things. Well, that's another parallel, it seems like, is you can have a mental health condition and be normal. Exactly. We are in his infancy right now. Like we have some representation of mental health you know, in the media, like a star is born and, you know, like euphoria and all that. But it's like, not all of us are drug addicts, you know, like not all of us are trying to kill ourselves. Just like, you know, in the gay community, when the representation goes, it's not all as tragic endings, you know, not all people with mental health conditions are trying to kill themselves. They're not doomed. They're not doomed. It's yeah. And that's what drives people to despair young people especially who don't have the full context of it gets better like that's why i love that slogan and it works you know i don't want to like take power away from the lgbt community you know and i would be very respectful but it's like yeah it it absolutely works for people with mental health condition too and also lgbt community you know like because of the bullying and everything that, that can happen when they're young also also tends to those are also not mutually exclusive, right? There's some overlap. Yeah, yeah. And so it absolutely gets better. That's the message I want to send to people who are, you know, either young people or just they may not even be young, but just learning about their mental health diagnosis. What we see in TV and movies for the general public, like that is not reality. Like think about like what you're seeing now is the infancy of the journey of what representation will look like and why representation matters and why we need more people who are creating media that live with mental illness who who w- are willing to um, represent it in a empathetic and well-rounded way. Another parallel I noticed, even before you mentioned LGBT, is as far as going forward, right? What you were saying about your coming out story, it seems like just like with LGBTQ, coming out creates community right because you said you wish you knew some of these other people who are isolating themselves and not sharing their stories it's kind of part of empowerment a lot of people don't understand why there's such an emphasis in the lgbtq community to come out yeah but it is an important step as far as going forward and making things better because that is how you set up 
the community so you don't feel alone and get into despair because if nobody comes out then everybody's struggling with this on their own and then how do we go forward and that sounds almost like one for one parallel in that way is part of uh, mental health advocacy sounds like the ultimate purpose is to create community not just for others but so you can have community absolutely yeah it's a catch-22 of like how harmful stigma is because you know if you are suffering you will continue to experience stigma and um, the fear of it because you're not seeing people who are well and then if you are well because the only attention is on the people in crisis then you're not willing to come out with your mental health condition so then it's this like vicious cycle of you know that it's like you can't you can't break out of it and so I'm saying like we need to break out of this and the the way that it is for people who are like me who have found balance in their lives who have been stable in treatment for a you know long time and know that you can live well to come out and share our stories. Now, if you break a bone, right, you go to the doctor, but no one ever talks to you about when to see someone about anything mental health related. And sometimes it can go undiagnosed, like, you know, for too long. So how do you know when you should seek treatment? I feel like this is funny, but if you think you should you, you even think about seeking treatment, you should probably seek treatment because <laughs> I, I feel like what's the harm? You know, I know. I, <laughs> yeah. Other than stigma, which is like largely internalized, I think, you know, and um, and also, I guess, you know, there's the cost implications if you, you know, s- struggling financially. But um, but, you know, there are resources that can help with that, you know, or free Uh, resources that depending on what situation you're in. Also, I think if you have a family history um, or history of poverty or family history of mental illness or, you know, any of those risk factors, addiction, you know, all that stuff, um, trauma, absolutely trauma, (laughs) you know, any past history of trauma of any sort. I think that means you probably a prime candidate to, to get some help to get therapy, but you don't have to have those things, right? Or because you may not even realize that. Like I faced a lot of uh process and realized a lot of trauma that that I did have in my past, a lot of trauma that I didn't know. I remember going to a therapist um and you know one of the most intensive like periods of therapy that I did was when I was preparing to have my child. And she was like, oh so do you have any childhood trauma? And I straight face told her no because I didn't know (laughs) I didn't know I didn't process the things that I have gone through as like what was abusive what was you know like the the, to the extent of what it is because you know when we grow up like in an isolated family like this is just how we are we're Chinese we're different you know and so you just accept it and you've condi- been conditioned that for your whole life you know even though i was like 32 you know or 31 you know, early 30s at the time like i still i had to actually speak it in english for me to realize how bad it sounded <laughs> you know like for me to and you know and one of the most helpful things that that therapist told me was um be your own child advocate like go back you know like do a exercise with yourself like if you could go back as an adult and help you yourself as a child like what would you say to that child you know and it like it really kind of t- like turned a light switch on for me yeah you know, oh lisa ling or uh said um, 
in a Fung Brothers interview that all Asians <laughs> need therapy, <laughs> you know? And it's like, and I don't know if I like agree with that. I think everybody needs therapy. Yeah, I think I need, I think I agreed with that to the extent that like anybody who has a family history of trauma or has been through trauma can use therapy. And as like Asian Americans were like, mostly you know immigrants whether like multi-generation go immigrants or recent immigrants but like if you're escaping you know war <laughs> you know like vietnam war co communist revolution like in every situation there was like some trauma like korean war like some japanese occupation or something shit went down you know yeah shit went down <laughs> that's why you're not in the country that you were you know that you your family lineage came from you know so it's okay it's okay if you need a little help exactly <laughs> it's understood yeah oh that's what you went through okay it's quite okay. understandable <laughs> yes <laughs> what does it mean to be a good ally then for those with mental health conditions? Yeah, I mean, I think that you should prioritize yourself first because you can't care for other people when when you're not taking care of yourself, right? And um, you have to know how much you can give and like and know your limits. Like every small kind act is going to count and it's but you can't put risk your own mental health too much like you know because that's not going to help anybody if you end up both in a really bad place um but also letting others in right of course with the permission of the person who is struggling so that you're not carrying the load by yourself also like leading by example by you know you taking care of yourself that is that is showing the person who is struggling that like oh this is this is the way that that it should be and like keep staying connected with the person and like reinforce their worthiness just staying connected is is so key right um so like this list that i have is is from uh, a behavioral therapy method developed by um dr robert myers and it's called community reinforcement and family training it's the acronym is craft and it's been like proven in multiple clinical trials um, that it's a really effective way to influence and support a loved one who is struggling. It's it's actually developed for um, addiction and people who are resistant to treatment that way. But but I think that it um, it's absolutely it, it's like most of this these ideals. When I read it, I was like, wow, this like this would work for mental health as well, you know, because they're often connected. Like addiction is often I think a result of untreated mental illness of self-medication and so um so yeah like make sure you're strong enough to help the person first that you have the support of other family and friends like if you are really a um primary supporter of a person like don't keep don't change the uh the goal of what they can achieve you know like it's if it's like if they were in bed depressed but now they are going to school and you know getting up and and doing their job like don't sweat the steps small stuff about like they're not cleaning up their room or you know they're throwing out the trash like you know just small steps right and so yeah celebrate the small stuff and remaining remaining positive even in the face of like if there's setbacks um just always listen and like ask for permission and think this often means like sometimes having to wait until a person is ready to talk about 
mental health, like even if you are, you've approached it before and they're not open to it. You still have to give them autonomy. Right, right, right. And to build a relationship like post-diagnosis, it's a new relationship, I think. It can, it can be, like depending on the severity of what the diagnosis is to like understand the context of it. So it's like, if your if you're, um, previous relationship was like based on going bar hopping a lot, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, um, you know, if you're on a mental health uh, or uh, psych- psychiatric medication, like drinking a lot is not going to be helpful, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's probably not helpful for general health anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's going to be maybe some changes to your relationship and like, and um, I think being aware of that and being supportive of that and being open to that and like still knowing that the relationship matters, I think it's going to make all the difference. Yeah, I have heard people talk about that where once they started just trying to be healthy, period, and change their lifestyle, they lose a lot of friends. Basically, this is saying just because your friend is trying to better themselves doesn't mean you should stop being their friend. You could find new ways to hang out and spend time with them and stay connected. Right. So I asked people on Facebook, what are some of the things they wanted asked or discussed in my conversation with you? Mm -hmm. And one person wanted us to discuss masculinity and mental health. And I guess this goes to stigma, this perception that many men have that showing or admitting to anything perceived as weakness is wrong, which we've probably seen too often, how toxic levels of masculinity can be destructive to not only oneself and to others. And actually, this can go beyond just masculinity, because I think you were saying earlier, a lot of people just feel like weakness in general is wrong. Again, I'm not a professional, you know, on this, but like, I I do feel like from my own observation, yeah, men are more, more prone because of our culture, afraid to appear weak. And so that further stigmatizes them from accessing treatment because they feel like going to therapy, um, talking about their emotions, those are all signs of weakness, which is really untrue. And it's really tragic that, and, you know, as a mother of a son, like, you know, that I'm absolutely trying not to do that, you know, and, and make it okay for him to have emotions. And because like, I think traditionally most cultures don't allow men to have emotions and the only allow allowable one is anger, (laughs) right? Because it's a powerful emotion. Yeah. Happiness and anger are like the two that you're allowed to have if you're a man, you know, and there's, you know, obviously so much more nuance to that than, you know, the, the human emotion is a much more complicated thing. There's a documentary called The Mask They Live In that was by the Representation Project that is was is so, you know, illuminating. And, you know, using my own brother as an example, you know, I, I, of course, love him so much. We grew up in the same environment and no one understands what each other went through except for, you know, the, the two of us, you know, and I've encouraged him a lot to seek therapy, but he won't, you know, <laughs> like he he is very apprehensive about it. I looked up a lot of studies about men and mental health compared to women and how often they seek treatment. And every study says the same thing, that they are far less likely to go seek treatment. Right. And, you know, my my brother sees it as, oh, like, I'm 
strong enough that I didn't need it, you know, and that hurts me, <laughs> you know, that hurts me too. And I really, I want him to be well, right? I want him to be healthy. And I just think that it is a dangerous philosophy. There's so much stigma and ignorance anyway. So just being tough and macho just adds another level of resistance that we don't even need because it's already challenging enough as it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Men are less willing to seek treatment because of the way that we we condition them. Yeah. And that's a societal thing. That's not necessarily a genetic thing or something you were raised to even believe in your own household. Even if you don't try to raise somebody like that, they'll pick that up because that's just how society currently still is. Yeah. Another person on Facebook asked, how do you feel about the mental health landscape and care from providers? And if it has changed for the better over the years since you were first diagnosed? You know, I, I kind of have like I only have my own um, experience to to discuss. Right. And um, it it's I feel like it's a it's a both. It goes both ways. On the one hand, I feel like it's great that we're talking more about the cultural cultural lens, the culturally informed. But in my experience, that can backfire. Also, I had a personal uh personal experience with my one and one and only appointment with a therapist where my yeah the the get to know each other appointment where she just kept going your people are only concerned about respect like your people are really (laughs) concerned with honor your people your people your people and of course she's you know she's not a person of color and so I was just stunned and I like try to talk you know I try to try to provide my input but like she kept cutting me off because she was so eager to share her knowledge of my people you know and like and of course she doesn't really know who my people was (laughs) you know and and I feel like going at it from a compassionate point of view like she was probably felt uncomfortable working with me too. And so I don't know if she had like, she did just go to a training about cultural sensitivity and, you know, you know, treating Asian Americans and, and like, these were the generalizations that they had taught her, you know, and so she was trying to show me her expertise in my people, you know, and so like, that's the way that I chose to interpret it. Obviously, I never went back, I should have left in the in the in the appointment, you know, but I, was pretty mobilized by the experience, you know, and, um, and even recently, you know, I um, went to the NAMI 2019 uh, convention, which was a really, really inspiring experience. There are, there were, I think it was 1800 um, people who were in attendance, like to see this, like a huge room of people, most of whom um, were providers, so passionate about trying to help, you know, and, and make a difference. So it was it was such an empowering and amazing experience. And there were many, many uh, workshops that were addressing cultural sensitivity. But, you know, I also saw that there were a lot of generalizations like Asians are this way Hispanics are this way you know like Native Americans are this way and and African Americans are this way and I understand the need to have that background knowledge to know that going into an appointment and trying to understand your patient or your client's background but I just hope that it doesn't overshadow your training as a therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, first and foremost, which should be to listen and to empathize 
right? Yeah. And so um, I've just kind of seen a struggle with that a little bit because in our attempt to be too culturally sensitive, like, and I've I've witnessed this in the court in the corporate world as well. You know, it's like, oh, when you work with people from this culture, you got to do this. Like, I've attended those corporate, you know, the cultural sensitivity, you know. But it's like you're just shoving stereotypes down people's throat, you know. And it's almost like, look what I've learned. I want you to know what I've just learned. <laughs> exactly. And what's Asian American? We're such a vast umbrella you know like my experiences as a first generation immigrant is going to be so different than my friend who is a fifth generation half chinese person right or you know like mixed race chinese person like it's we're so different and like my parents who you know own a restaurant her parents who are professors or you know whatever like it's we are all so different and so we never make general generalizations about white americans Right. I know it's because of the majority, but it's like if if I just can't imagine if I was a white American on that on that couch, you know, seeing that therapist, like, would she say, oh, white Americans do this and this and this white Americans are this and this and this. But, you know, actually, Caucasians suffer some of the highest suicide rates out of all, you know, the minorities, it, like the broad range, like the I think the younger numbers um, say have um, Native, Native Americans is highest suicide rate. but but, you know, the general numbers are actually white Americans have the highest suicide rates. But why don't we make unique generalizations to white culture, you know, but but we do it to Asian culture, to all the other cultures, you know, and I feel like that can be the opposite of empowering, you know, like because it's like if you blame it on culture. Oh, yeah, that's bad. Then you can't you feel like you can't change without hating yourself without abandoning a part of yourself. And that is not a way to heal. You have to love yourself to heal, right? And so if you saying, oh, you're you're mentally ill because of, as a result of your culture, like that is not a way that you can feel like you can make a change and make progress, you know? And as a people, like um, a lot of, you know, I, I feel like with my own background, um, how my parents raised us was under a belief system that is, been abandoned back in Korea and Taiwan, right? Like, and you know, like wherever we have our roots is like corporal punishment has been illegal, you know, for like in China since like 1950 or something. But, you know, but my parents, you know, they're like, nope, you know, because of the isolated culture, it's almost like a time capsule of philosophy that they've brought over and we're like stricter than even, you know, even back in the you know back back in the countries of origin you know i don't know about china but koreans see that a lot where when they go back and visit their family in korea they find that the koreans in korea are a lot more progressive yeah. than the koreans here absolutely yeah i absolutely agree with that and um i was so relieved when i went back to korea last year and i asked my cousins i was like do they still hit you in school and they're like no you know <laughs> and you know, i did when you know i left when i was nine they hit they hit me you know and so um but it's like korea because when korea um made it illegal it it went to the Chinese school as well. And I was so relieved to that, that the Chinese school that's in Korea. Yeah. And so um, to your point, it's true. A lot of people, when they come here, they get stuck in a time warp and it's kind of like the end of history. That's it. Right. Right. <laughs> we figured it out. This is how it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is just how it is. A lot of parents misguidedly think that time capsule, that snapshot that they know is how 
their culture is indefinitely. They'll just say 1950s China and 1950s Chinese culture is just Chinese culture because they're not up to date on current culture. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, they they mean well. <laughs> you know, even though I don't want to use that as an excuse, and I don't, but it's um, but they how they raise us is to prepare us to um. To, to keep us safe in the society that they think it is, right? So they try to te teach me, like, um, especially, like, the the very unfeminist ideals of, like, oh, a woman always needs a man, and, you know, a woman always has to be pretty and skinny and beautiful. You know, like, your worth is all physical appearance versus what's in your head, or, like, one is more much more important than the other. Like, all of those things that, you know, they're preparing me for a society that doesn't exist anymore that doesn't that is not the reality of my everyday in the US you know and so so yeah that that's a really interesting kind of digression sorry i dig digress from your original question of like you know but it's like yeah i feel like yes and no like in on the one way on a, you know on one hand therapists and you know providers are aware that there is a a cultural lens that needs to be applied that that um an understanding that is needed. But on the other hand, I feel like there is um, room for improvement, improvement in how that we apply that filter and how we, how we, how they, you know, provide treatment. And also too, it's like, that's all more new school thinking, right? There's still a lot of, you know, people who were trained in years ago, decades ago that are still in practice. So there's, you know, you're going to be able, you're going to run the gamut of providers you encounter and it, it is really hard it can be really hard to find a provider that you find to be a good fit right and even outside of providers i think that is like kind of an infancy baby step where it's still not good but it's an attempt to try to get good which is like what all not just asian americans but i think anybody who came from an immigrant experience is this internalized belief the next step which is okay i'm gonna go seek treatment but i believe that these cultural factors are the cause of my problems, not just a factor in them and a way to like think about it. You know, kind of like Lisa Ling's statement. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard a lot of Asians and other minority <laughs> groups say that, that because they grew up in a Hispanic Catholic household or an Asian like traditional household is the cause of all their mental health issues that they currently have. And it definitely can be a factor, but it's not necessarily the cause, but it can be a lens in how to understand it though. Absolutely. And and there is a um, power in healing and knowing the shared experience, right? Like why subtle, subtle Asian tra traits is such a huge thing, right? The Facebook group of, you know, like to, to know, to be able to find people with shared experience is really validating. And so I don't want to take away from from that but i also like that's different from what a what a provider may offer right so in preparation for this episode i began asking people what you could do or should do if you were to have a severe psychotic episode like the one you described earlier and all the answers i got from people were the same they all said parents oh <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine if you have parents and they have the will or even the means to help you. But otherwise, people really couldn't think of any other safety net, like a Mad Max world where you're on your own as far as mental health care. And the reason I brought this up is because we're just now as a country coming to terms with, yes, 
there are people out there who can't afford cancer treatments and insulin for their diabetes. But I don't think we're still there yet as far as talking about the financial realities of mental health or just mental health care, period. So what options do we have in this country when you're low income and are dealing with minor to severe mental health conditions and have no financial or even sometimes social support? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the mental health landscape is so closely tied with political progress, right? And um, it's part of our society's landscape, yeah, for social progress. And like women's reproductive rights, civil liberties, you know, we've, we've seen we're seeing a change over the years, and um, sometimes it feels like two steps forwards, three steps backwards, you know. And um, and the current admin administration is like un, you know undoing some of that progress. And um, you know, we have a president who's openly blaming mental illness for mass shootings, you know, and and that's just all. <laughs> Obviously, there's no proven link between the two. A mentally ill person is no more likely to be violent than a non-mentally ill person. You know, if it was mental illness, people in other countries would also have mass shootings, but they don't. It's only a problem here in the United States. But so, you know. Where, you know, where to go if you don't have family support. And, you know, so it's I, I brought all that up because it's like the homelessness issue. I've, you know, brought that up before in our conversation. I think conservatively, they say 40 percent of the homeless live with mental illness. That's just really sad. I mean, people have many people have described the situation in the U.S., the lack of services as a as mental health services as a as a crisis, you know, and even people who um, have the means and have the insurance, it's it's it can be hard to find a provider because there's a lack of them. There's not enough, you know, like there's vast communities where there's like one psychiatrist for three hundred thousand people or something, you know, and there's just no way that they are going to be able to um, get the help they need locally. Um, and so that's just a sad state of affairs that that it's a bigger question that we're going to have to try to tackle as a nation, you know, as any other big problem, like any other society problem. But as far as, you know, to get more granular of like, what options do you have in this country when you are low income and trying to get help? Um, you know, sometimes I think it's as simple as people just assume it's going to be too expensive and don't even try. You know, and like so, but with health insurance, they can be like the copay can be nominal. Like some people don't even believe if they don't believe that mental health is a real thing, mental illness is a real thing, then they might not believe that insurance would cover it when it's like not a real thing, right? So like check check with your mental you know health insurance if you have it that like a copay it may be manageable. Also, there's like training facilities like the local university or a training clinic offer often offer therapy for um, lower cost. Um, also, you can contact therapists and ask about pro bono or sliding scale rates. I think many, many offer this. And um, I think coming out of school, they're like really highly encouraged to do at least some pro bono work as a you know, per, per, uh, percentage of their practice. Um, also, if you have a job where they have employee assistance program with work, like um, many offer like a free number of free therapy sessions per year that I think for the most part, they don't get taken advantage of because of the stigma. They think that if they do it with work, then work will somehow find out. 
but that's it's there for you to use, you know, and they want you to be healthy to keep working for them, you know. And so I think I would love for that to go away. Um, of course, there are community resources as well, like NAMI and other organizations that um, can help you find your resources, like schools and hospitals and even like places of worship can help you find resources. 211 is a hotline that can connect you um, with mental health services. It's not like they offer you services right then, but they tell you like what organization you can contact. And, you know, support groups are helpful. Um, you know, they're they're not a replacement for counseling. I never want to say that, you know, because I think people definitely need a professional counselor. There's nobody. It's The support groups are peer support groups. So you're just there for community. But I find a lot of people and myself as well, like it would be so much more expensive if I was like going to therapy like so so they, they almost do it as a um a balance right so then they can do go to a therapy with a therapist or you know psychologist and then also do support group to augment it and then it's like a um to fully like to fill out your care um that is can be really helpful and support groups are free and you can you know find that in um, nami or um, other nonprofit organizations there there are like the newer online services um, more and more therapists are doing um, video service, you know, and I I feel like, you know, if it's either that or nothing, <laughs> you know, like, and e- people are even trying text. I feel like any way you can get help, if it's what you can do, I feel like if it's better than nothing, to it's maybe worth a try, right? There's the county itself, too. Like in California, right, we have Medi-Cal and the Department of Health Services that can try to help you out. But problem with that is, is just too much people to help. And then other states might be even worse or might not even offer help. This is where we go to your point about political progress. You can't think about this without that. I, there's not enough funding. You know, there's wait lists that are impossible. Like even for me, I was paying and I, <laughs> we had waited over a month, correct? Like, so, um, so, I mean, it's not perfect, but like if you are, it's not so the key, I think, is to not to get to crisis level, right? So, because by the time you're in crisis, then, you know, of course, there's 911 also, you know, and they can try to get you a bed, a bed in a psychiatric hospital if there's, like, if it comes to that dire problem. But if you are still functioning, you know, relatively okay okay, and just need some help, like, there's these other, the list of that I just gave is, you know, different things that you can try and look into. And also, like, if you're a survivor of, like, specific kind of trauma, like, domestic or sexual violence or something specific like that. I know that there are nonprofits that offer free counseling for specifically survivors of such things. And so I think there's just research involved and you have to, you know, there's work that is needed. So maybe two on one is, um, I, you know, is one that you can call and get, get some additional resource. I know NAMI has a hotline as well that helps you, helps um, connect you. Yeah. Connect you to such resources. Um, because otherwise it's, um, it is some, it takes some work to find that, that the free or lower cost care and that like onus is on you. And if you're depressed, you may not be able to do that, (laughs) you know? And so, um, but there, you know, it is out there and there's also the, you know, if it comes to that, there's the national suicide hotline as well, which is free. Yeah. So we have to talk about the political aspect of it because even what all this said is still sucks in this country, you know, yeah. it, it sucks because yeah. even though you didn't say it sucks, 
it's about what you did say, right? You brought up the homelessness. Yeah, no, it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> Even in 2019, most Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. So it's terrifying to think about that reality in the context of options for mental health care, let alone just general health care, period, right? And I talked about the county, but let's say you have something or your child has something that's so severe and then now you're not around. I think state by state, they have to have some kind of group homes, but a lot of them are full and they're not great anyway. And even in 2019, I looked this up, still the number one reason for bankruptcy is medical expenses. So it's not just losing your job. It can even be a health condition that's beyond your means that can put people out on the street. So this lack of empathy we have for our fellow Americans who happen to be homeless is really disappointing because a lot of times it could be their illness, whether it's mental health or physical, that could put them out because it is so expensive and there isn't enough room and the safety nets we have suck. I absolutely agree. I have... When people uh, like because I live in Seattle where like the Seattle is dying, the Seattle homelessness issue um, is is a very topical issue. And nothing breaks my heart than more than like whether it's a co colleague or a friend that I've known for a long time when they when they don't show proper em empathy for homelessness, you know, like whether, you, you know, it's just I'm, I'm like, you're dead to me. <laughs> You know, and I try to be a really empathetic person, you know, but it's like uh, that just hurts. It, it hurts me to it, like it hurts to the foundation of like who I am that people think, oh, some people don't want to be helped or they're just drug addicts and they did it to themselves. Right. I mean, that's kind of the same thing. I think two ways of saying the same thing. And um, and when people take pictures of homeless people for jokes, you know, have you seen that before? Like I've seen that in my in my yes. networks and I'm just like, I just can't. I just can't. Um, and it's just so tragic to me. And um, just knowing how close I am to that. Yeah. And even you said like in China, that could have been you. We talk about this in our group a lot, in our support group. A lot of people have a fear of homelessness, you know, who live with mental health conditions because it's just so easy, so easily. Like if we didn't have this, if we didn't have a job, if we didn't have this, like it's um, a lot of people who come to support group are alone. They don't have a very um, wide network of support, you know, and so um, or they have previously lived with homelessness before. And so it's. It's just um, it's a con it's a topic that's too close to me that I you know that that I um, have a hard time seeing from the other side of the argument you know where it's less an empathetic supportive view of homelessness. Well, I think even if you're not dealing with any health conditions, mental or physical, we all in this country have a fear of homelessness. Period. Even if you have a well-paying job, because we know if the wrong thing happens in this country, it's like we criminalize poverty. It's not that you're just okay now. I don't have a job. It's like if things go wrong, you get evicted. <laughs> you're out on the street, and then from then on, just existing can be illegal. Right. So actually, because we're already into this, let's get into it. Let's get into the shit. <laughs> let's get deep into the shit. Let's uh -huh. talk about portrayals of those suffering from mental health conditions in the media, because you've already alluded to this a lot, because what comes to my mind are supervillains and just bad people in movies, right? The bad guys and the derogatory term psycho is interchangeable in our culture with evil supervillain. 
And that's just how it is, not just in the media, but just how we talk in our day to day. Yeah. People who, you know, I think those violent people or whether they're usually portrayed as like people with multiple personality disorder or schizophrenia. Um, but mo- most people think of schizophrenia and think that they're violent, but mostly they're nonviolent people, you know, only 4% of those who live with severe mental illness show violent tendencies, which is the same percentage of the rest of the population who do not have a diagnosed mental illness. Like I just cannot say that enough. And so when you think about the conception of that, the, the, the popular perception of that, it's like, so the opposite, you know? Um, And, you know, like I said, the mental health representation is in the entertainment is it's such in its infancy it's such a caricature and it's i feel like us as consumers of media to realize that it's a caricature and i i think that people don't know that you know and i think it must have been like this when asian american representation was in it or asian in general representation was in its infancy when lgbtq representation was in infancy you know people saw those things and thought oh, that's true because I don't know anybody around me who is like this, you know? And so I don't know an Asian, I don't know a gay person. And so that must be the reality of it. Um, But we, it's our job as consumers to educate ourselves and know that those are caricatures. Those are not real. It's fiction. It's, It's a very loaded and complicated topic for me, you know, because, you know, we, it's, it's, it's like trauma porn you know, um, and it's a very fine line between representing, representing mental health, uh, mental illness in, in, you know, whether it's a movie or a TV show, is it just for the drama and the entertainment value of it, you know, or are you trying to incite some sort of, some empathy and understanding? And I hope that it's the latter, but, you know, we have free speech in this country, you know, I'm a writer, you know, like it's, you know, they have creative license right so it's unfortunate like how we change public perception is for representation of mental illness to move out of the infancy just like asian american representation is beginning to just like lgbtq representation you know has moved out i would say you know more and more um i think the two pieces of entertainment that i find like best with representation you know, it is like actually Silver Linings Playbook because it's like the only only movie with people who live with mental health conditions that like it's not a sad story at the end. You know, it's not, it's not a it's not a sad ending. It's optimistic and it's like it's a pretty you know realistic um, representation and it's like a, a very complex story. And Euphoria also, I don't know if you've seen it's the HBO series. It also um, shows a very empathetic portrayal um i mean the main character does deal with addiction you know and like self medication which which you know i like so destructive behaviors which like i i do hope that there's more of just like oh this person is another normal character and one aspect of their what makes them interesting it may be that they have a mental health health condition but that is not a defining characteristic we're not seeing that enough right now, right? Every time if you see a mental health, mentally ill person, that's all they are. They're like, oh, here's the crazy person, you know? And 
um, it's it's time for for us to have more happy endings. You know, <laughs> like we need to rewrite that narrative. It's not always suicide and self destruction and you know robbing your house for drugs. You know, like um, I mean, out of all the fictionalized entertainment and media, if you could only think of two <laughs> that are somewhat positive that's pretty bad yeah i mean i thought actually russian doll was pretty good as well i think it it um have you seen that one like it, it's um it also sort of um represents her, like her mom and like the mental illness is like more more of understanding but like there are certain ones that are um hyped up that i kind of have questions about like you know maniac is another series on netflix that that um it it um emma stone was in that one and the first episode was actually kind of triggering for me <laughs> because it was so realistic, such a realistic portrayal of what psychosis was like. And it, it was like a trip that I wasn't ready for, you know? And, um, and so I was, it actually took me a while for me to like go back to it and watch the rest of it. And the rest of it is just from, for my interpretation is just like pretty pure science fiction. It goes like way beyond, but like, I feel like it's just a, it's just it becomes just for entertainment value. At least that's like my for my interpretation. Well, that's a common trope in fiction, too, is this kind of like, are they crazy, quote unquote, or are they having some kind of sci fi mystical experience or horror movie experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's yeah, it's the I don't want it to be trauma porn. I don't want it to be like mental illness porn. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I, I would love for everything to be have a, a more well-rounded representation that that you know changes the narrative because that is better for society you know but i also am fully aware that not every entertainment writer is approaching the subject from that point of view right like they're not trying to make societal change they're just trying to write an entertainment entertaining piece of work that sells you know and so yeah <laughs> you know it's such a loaded issue I think it's going to be generational because whatever we're consuming as adults, there might be a couple positive, but they're problematic. But now as a parent, it seems like the actual good representations where they're a superhero or they're a friend in this book who just also happens to have a mental health condition, but that doesn't define them. I see that in children's books or in comic books. And those are geared for the young kids. So it's kind of like for us, it's already too late because the ones who are writing for us are our age or older. They're already too far gone. They're already so deep in the stigma. They're, they're trying, but they're still going to be problematic. But for like the, the younger kids, they're going to come up with different stuff. Right. And I mean, and I'm not trying to um, take value away from like some of the tragic stories like A Star is Born, you know, with Lady Gaga, like that, that was, a, a you know, a beautiful film you know but but it's like we can't just keep seeing suicide stories you know um i i want i want more like i want the happily ever after as well you know um to, to balance that out well imagine like if we had driving miss daisy as the benchmark forever for like black americans in movies it's like okay maybe back then that helped but that can't be the bar forever yeah right and right now we're talking about fiction. We're talking about entertainment, but news media is just as complicit because I notice they tend to attribute mental health conditions to anyone, like you mentioned, who is violent and evil. So not just the president, but the news media itself kind of does that or not kind of does that. 
does that and has been doing that. So it's like, no matter how methodical and calculated somebody is and some harm they do, and it's often racial when it's whites. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Of course, they're sick. They're sick. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not anyone. It's not anyone. It's only whites. Yeah. <laughs> and when it's whites, it's like, duh, they're sick, obviously. But when they're non-whites, they're just sane and evil. They're criminals. Yeah, they're criminals. Yeah, I mean, like gang violence. Predators, terrorists. Yeah, and it's it's so unfair, right? Because it's I think what people do is automatically, if, they're, if somebody commits a crime that is so heinous that they can't comprehend, like, in a, with a neuro, well, I mean, just a anybody, just a you know, person, neurotypical or not, if they can't comprehend why somebody would shoot a bunch of kindergartners, right? Like, then they're like, oh, they must be mentally ill. Well, then does that mean you can understand why somebody would rape a bunch of kindergartners? You know, like, would somebody would beat their wives? You know, like, or you know, like, so, so if you use that as a uh, a litmus test, then. Why aren't we saying, you know, it's it's just it's just not it's just not factual. It just doesn't work. The argument falls apart. Right. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> well, I guess not even that obviously. I guess it's obvious to yeah. us. But <laughs> what yeah, the hell? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and also, yeah, like I and I said this before, but in other countries. So, you know, we have more access. You know, we, we're a country of that is a wealthier country. Right. So we have more access to care, even though we have we are having a. Uh, we have a different set of problems here than, say, uh, underdeveloped countries that are completely stricken with poverty. But in the U.S., one in five adult, adults live with a mental health condition, mental illness. Um, but worldwide, the number is higher. It's one in four if you take worldwide statistics. So there's more people who suffer mental health conditions worldwide, yet we're the only one with this problem. <laughs> Maybe the danger isn't the mental health condition, it's yeah. being American. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's our gun control laws, right? It's our access to guns, right? And so, um, and I come from Arizona, where actually my dad and brother love their guns, you know? And and um, and so it's, it's, it's mixed for interesting family gatherings, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What about how society treats people having some sort of psychotic episode, like you mentioned earlier, but let's say it's happening here in the U.S. because it seems like the default is to treat the person having an episode like a criminal, like we criminalize illness in this country in many ways. So like if somebody's having an issue, we don't call, you know, a therapist or when we do call 911, they don't send over some mental health advocate. You see cops coming with guns drawn. And I've seen videos where somebody who's clearly having an episode gets shot. I wonder if like unconsciously people, even in positions of authority, buy into that thing of mental health equals bad guy equals criminal. Yeah, that is is just a tragedy. You know, um, I I uh, I've read about there's programs that are starting um, and like uh, pilot programs that I think there's one in Oregon and one in California that I've heard about so that they have there is a there are dispatching mental health professionals instead of um, police officers to in these in these sorts of mental health crises. Um, but those are tiny, tiny drops in the bucket, right? And like really, really hope that they go well so that they get um, implemented more widely. Because not only does it more does it make sense for the person in crisis, but it actually saves us a whole lot of money. <laughs> you know, saves the government a whole lot of money. It's like um, you know a, a fraction of the cost of what it would cost to to send like police and a full you know emergency 
you know, uh, rescuers. And so it, it's, yeah, <laughs> I, I've read a lot too, when it's like when you're in college, you know, and you're struggling with your mental health and your dorm advisor, they call the, they call the police on you because they, they think that you should be hospitalized. And then you show up, the police show up on camp, camp, campus and they, all your friends see you being escorted in handcuffs out to a police car you're going to a psych treatment center but people don't know that does that completely ruin your life after that i mean like of course we're saying there's like nothing you can't come back from right but that's going to be traumatic it doesn't help <laughs> yeah it doesn't help and it's not necessary it could also escalate things it escalate it can escalate things yeah if that person is a was black as a person of color then that could have been go really really bad right yeah, it's just that that is definitely an improvement that we can make as a society. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's not even like lack of treatment. It's on top of that, the criminalizing of stuff like criminalizing of poor health, not just someone with a mental health condition, but it can be like I was talking about earlier with diabetes or someone with cancer. And it's illegal to have a cancer so bad that it makes you broke and on the street, right? You can have a just a health condition in this country and go bankrupt and lose everything and without money existing just becomes illegal it's not just a lack of empathy it's punishing people for illnesses and health conditions and poverty punishing them for poverty yeah and people you know you you see people standing in the street um you know with signs and i don't know if you've been to this experience sam but like when people are weirdly picky about oh those are some nice earrings for a homeless person that's a nice outfit you know like when people say that those kind of insensitive things you know it's just um i don't even know what their point is it's so i don't know <laughs> what's the point right like it's like you know and actually this happened once when my son was around and he's five and he says well maybe somebody donated the earrings <laughs> you know and it's like that's from my five-year-old you know and well they're implying that these people are scam artists yeah right and um it's yeah i mean there's so much you can read if you you know if if you have the interest and willingness to educate yourselves right like i've made a lot of wonderful friends who are writers in the writing community which is they're really amazing um who have you know, Tamara Gain is one who um, has written multiple articles about living in poverty as a single mother, um, and uh, and and that what that experience is like, and how you know how you know in her story obviously is not unique, you know, and how she has to she went without meals so that her son could, you know, her child could, and and the type of judgment that people would give you know her it's like and how many times you have to say no to your kid right because you don't have you don't have the money to to do the things that other kids are doing and so then you say yes to things that are small like chocolate bars or whatever and people then judge you for buying your kid chocolate bars with your ebt you know like and um or yeah that's a, some sort of small things it's just we should definitely be less judgmental of people living in poverty <laughs> in these urban like wealthy centers where it's full of liberals right people who might even consider themselves very progressive if you ask some people who tend to be higher on the income scale even if they tend to be liberal 
what they picture when they think of a con artist or a scam artist, right? They often describe to you somebody who's just poor. Oh, God. When statistically and by criminal definition, the definition of a con artist is somebody who's white collar, who's defrauding. And you know what I mean? But it is this weird stereotype. And I think that goes to that point about look at that person's shoes. We look at that person's earring. Right. <laughs> Not only do we like think of homelessness as this bad thing, we also are suspicious of them. We think of them as criminals, not just somebody who's down and out. We also haven't even talked about veterans and how many veterans are homeless. And it's like, these are people that we've sent out, we broke with our government policies, and they come back with traumas that they haven't healed from, with anxiety, with panic attacks, and they then, you know, fall into this society, this marginalized part of the population that ends up on the street. And then you come back and judge them and blame them when when we were, you know, part of part of the cycle of how our society is today, you know? I love it Ugh. when somebody's like, we have to support our veterans. There's so many of yeah, them that are yeah. that are homeless. <laughs> and then when they actually do see a homeless person who's a veteran with a side, they go, they're lying. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that yeah. so many times. Or they don't even make the association that the homeless person is a veteran. Yeah. So yeah, if, they, if they're not holding a sign. <laughs> so this is something you alluded to at the very beginning, and I want to save it to the end because it needs its own space and time. Because another common fixture in America is religion, and it's treating someone suffering from a mental health condition or even a psychotic episode as someone who's dealing with the devil or it's a possession, right? And going back to films and the media, always the line between mental illness and something more sinister, some evil spirit or entity or something supernatural is always blurred. And those suffering from mental health conditions are the villains of especially horror movies. And we buy into it. We enjoy the movie, but then we also think, yeah, but that part can be true. Not just in religious circles, but especially in religious circles. Because I've seen videos online shared by religious people I know of someone having an episode, but the video frames it as a demonic possession and as proof of the devil existing and and it becomes very political, you know, with right-wing ideology. So along with toxic masculinity, growing up in a religious household can add another layer of resistance, I notice. I know several people who had church interventions and exorcisms before ever getting medical help. And some people I know never got medical help. And especially those of us who are non-white minorities, religion, especially if you immigrated to this country, religion becomes even more powerful. So I wonder how much of the stigma comes from unfounded superstition. Yeah, I mean, that's hard to say. You know, I know that a lot of the people that I've interviewed or I've um, talked with um, through my nonprofit circles, um, I actually didn't grow up in a very religious family. And so I didn't have the, um, the pray it away sort of mentality um, of, I mean, there was just denial, <laughs> but, but um, you know, a lot of people when they, when they struggle, they're told by their support networks to, you know, talk to a pastor or talk to somebody in their, in their um, house of worship. Right. And that can help, but, but it's not, if you're su suffering from something severe, it's, they're not, those are not trained, <laughs> trained psychiatrists, like they're not trained to give you and they can't obviously prescribe medication. Um, I've heard actually that houses, houses of worship will sometimes help fund 
you know, you to go see a doctor if you need, you know. Those are the good progressive ones. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that's the good, yeah, good progressive ones, which is like, whoa, amazing. As somebody, as somebody who like, you know, I'll, I'll say like, I'm, I'm not f- like as familiar with, with a, um, a religious upbringing. But you're probably aware Korean Americans are yes. very religious. And yes, that's just yes. like a regular form of, they're not Catholics. They're not just like, an Obama type of Protestant Christian or a, you know, Clinton type of Protestant Christian. They're very evangelical so much. So they don't even know what that term means because that's the only type of religion they know. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, because growing up, I, like I did, I went to Korea Bible study. <laughs> like, even though we weren't, we weren't religious, my parents went to Korean church for years for the community. Cause if you are, yeah, if you're in a more isolated place where there's not a large Asian American population, like that's where you go. I, my Chinese school was at a, a Chinese ev- evangelical church, you know? Um, and so, so, you know, like I've been around it, just never like fully bought into it. <laughs> the term itself, stigma has roots to a spiritual meaning in stigmata yeah yeah in the christian faith so so superstition and negative ideas about mental health and actually misdiagnosing of those with mental health conditions are historically married right like it goes way back to being suspicious of mental health conditions as something demonic going all the way back to witchcraft and so forth right and i mean there's also a lot of speculation around like a lot of the um founders of religions as having just they were just suffering from psychotic episodes, right? Where they think that they've heard the word of God, you know? And of course, that's like um, blasphemy for people who follow that religion. But it's like, it's really curious of how it's like human history is just so interesting and how we how we view that. And it's so funny, like, what's the difference of, um, you know, how people stick and speak in tongues in church, you know, in, in, in ceremonies, like that's that's okay. But, you know, but, not, but, but then psycho- psychosis is so feared, you know, I, um, as, as somebody who kind of views herself as a outsider to that, like, um, there's a lot that I just don't understand, you know, <laughs> with, with religion, you know, and, um, but mental health conditions can be like a trigger to a lot of these religious beliefs, because if you do hear voices, then it reinforces and triggers your religious beliefs. They're like, Oh, they're either hearing the voice of God or they're hearing the devil, right? Instead of thinking this person might be having a mental health issue. And also those people I know, they don't have to be necessarily Korean. They could be any person who came from a very religious background. When they are dealing with something that's clearly a mental health condition, rather than recognizing it as such, they just ask to themselves and when they're talking about it to others, why would God do this to me? Instead of thinking of it as a mental health issue. Honestly, Sam, I think the reason of like, you probably sense my sort of like hesitancy around the topic is because like, I'm afraid of it. You know, <laughs> like, I'm afraid <laughs> of it. Because like, every time I suffered a psychotic episode, I thought I was like, so in, in high school, before I was diagnosed, and I had a uh, manic episode, I was like, Oh, I'm Christian now, you know, because I, I lived around, um, you know, I live in suburban Phoenix where most of my friends were Mormons or Christian, you know, or, um, or other denominations of Christian. And, um, and I remember coming out of it and like telling my friends, like, I'm Christian now. Cause like, you know, when I wasn't having an episode, I remember sitting at lunch table one day and realizing everybody around me who like these friends, all of my girlfriends who like, I thought were like my friends who cared about me, they all think I'm going to hell. 
And, you know, like, I guess it's a good thing, but like none of them tried to convert me at that point, <laughs> you know? And I was like, is this okay with you? Like, none, like nobody, you like, do none of you like care about me, you know? And it was like, it was kind of a like bizarre experience, you know? And then, and then, so I think it, it did become a big part of like what's going on in my head, like deep in my psyche. And so then when I suffered from mania, you know, and depression, like I came out of it, like when I was at this like really like manic high where I was like, I'm, I've like connected with religion and like, I'm Christian now. And then of course, like once I'm out of mania, I'm like, no, no, I've seen that. <laughs> that was not it. Cause like once I'm back to my logical self, like, no, that's, I, that's not me. Like I'm too scientific. Like I'm not like that. But then I was in college and I befriended a lot of people of the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you're familiar with the Baha'i faith and it's an amazing religion. I love people who are from the Baha'i faith. Like, I have such positive experience with them and I have like really wonderful memories with them. But yeah, another, I think that was when I came back from China. At one point I was like, oh, I'm Baha'i now, you know? And I told my friend that I was Baha'i and he was really excited. But, you know, but then once I was out, like, no, I'm not, you know, (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, um, you know, like there's still fundamental things of like, okay, if you don't support gay relationships then I can't believe in this faith you know (laughs) like you know and so so um and you know but then when I was like in the thick of it in the throes of psychosis when I was in China in my dorm room I thought I reached nirvana you know I was like connecting you know I was like solving this otherworldly puzzle and I I was like I in the mania of it I thought I had like risen to a point and I was like oh I can see how all the souls in the world are connected and I could like imagine these like red lines that were connecting to people and of course it's like it was such a like chilling amazing experience in the moment I was like blasting music and just like feeling so like high I've never done drugs but I felt really high you know and it's like and and then after and but then afterwards you're afraid of it like once you are once you are done done with your mania I'm like whoa what was that, you know? And then like, and then I had another episode where actually I was all about like Greek mythology, (laughs) you know, like in in that, in that psychosis, I was like connecting with like, you know, um, with, with Greek mythology. And because like, you know, like Mount Olympus is like Olympic mountains. And I don't know, like all these like things where, where it doesn't make sense when you're well, but if you lean into your psychosis, like for me, because it's like I've all I've been medicated, right? It's like even when you're not, it's like I remember there's a conscious decision of like, do you want to lean into, do you allow yourself to lean into your psychosis and like and believe that that is true? Or do you like pull yourself out and say and like and firm yourself in your regular reality, you know? And so um, so religion is scary to me and I don't I can't explain you know I don't know is Brigham Young a prophet or was he suffering from mania like (laughs) I don't know you know like and so um it's a hard topic for me to talk about you know (laughs) and like but even though you weren't raised religious right this kind of superstition and these kind of ideas still download into you we all kind of through popular culture and media we all start to like buy into it in some ways and then religion just can be a way where a lot of these kind of issues or symptoms can be sublimated and then it can be disguised and it could be even longer before you get help or treatment or diagnosis or may never get diagnosis because i've heard a lot of people who talk about their religious 
conversion or experience. And a lot of times it has sounded like they went through some episode and it was already a person who I always suspected anyway. Right. So here's the thing. So although I'm afraid of the actual goings on, <laughs> here's the actual the the um, the conclusion is that an exorcism doesn't work. <laughs> right. Yes. It does not work. Doesn't work to solve. <laughs> it does not work to solve a mental health uh, condition. It does not solve psychosis. It does not solve illness. It traumatizes you because untreated mental illness is more um, degenerative. Like you have, I think, actually suffer brain damage, you know. And so the, the longer you go untreated, the harder you're going to have of recovering, you know. And so um so that's why I keep, you know, I feel fortunate that like I, I did start getting treatment earlier on, you know, but like, but, but yeah, it doesn't help like you, whatever condition you have, you can do a psychosis or do a exorcism and it like, it didn't go away. You know, you're just buying time and doing more harm in the long run. You gave the example of somebody in college, right? You get arrested. Not only is the stigma of how everybody perceived you, but you yourself, if you get handcuffed and in the car, you'll always remember that. And now you'll, you kind of have this kind of trauma of being a criminal, even though you weren't. And then if you went through an exorcism, which I've known people who still to this day, because of the exorcism and all the religion, they always consider themselves kind of an evil person just because it traumatized in that way. So it's criminalizing it. And also then dehumanizing people the way we portray people on these things as like these evil supervillains or horror movie things is dehumanizing because we don't see them as a human anymore they're this other thing they don't have a human soul they're something else they're unhuman like right and it makes them it makes them internalize it so which means you can't get better like if it's something that is only wrong with you it's not a diagnosis it's not an illness it's just you then that means you can't get better because you are you and it's like hard to change you yourself, right? But if it's an illness, then you can treat it. You can take medication. You can get better, you know? And there are other people who share your same illness. I mean, that's why we have support groups, right? To like understand that it's like, oh my God, I had this psychosis. When I was psychosis, I had these thoughts and like somebody else had the exact same thoughts, you know? <laughs> like that is amazing. And that happened over and over. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's obviously a symptom. You know, just like a sore throat, you know, like it's not like only me. I, I'm uniquely having this experience because some fault of my own. It's not a character flaw. Right. It's not it's it's not a, a failure, a personal failure. It's a condition. There will be struggle and also there will be ups and downs. Right. If we're using the term like remission, then there could be even lapses. But like you said earlier on, there's nothing that you can't bounce back from just keep going what did you say like it will get better like keep going it gets better well i so appreciate you taking your time to educate and teach us michelle and if people wanted to find out more where can they find you um i have a blog called livingwellhappily.com and yeah that's where um you can find me and i can um, i'm on um facebook and instagram as michelle yang writer and I'm on Twitter as well as Michelle H. Yang. So you can find me those places. I'll put those links in the show notes. So thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. I love the programs that you've been um, putting together. I, I, I'm really grateful that there's somebody like you getting this kind of content out there. And so thank you for being here to amplify. Well, thank you. <laughs>